Take your Bibles and turn to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs 1. Driver's training is going to be a theme of my life in this coming year, again. I have loved teaching my kids how to drive. Uh, So much so that I've even thrown in a few of my nieces and nephews into the mix. But I do not take responsibility for them. Uh, That's on their parents. Of course, uh, this year's lessons is going to be done here in the congestion of Southern California rather than the country roads of the Central Valley. So I thank you in advance for your prayers. (laughs) Driver's training can be terrifying. In fact, when I began uh, with my child and I'm sitting in the car in an empty parking lot, the engine turned off, I seek to impress upon them the danger of the situation. It's a, they are in a potentially deadly machine. In fact, that day we could both die and we could take others with us if the instructions are not followed. And so I try and keep my instructions very simple. I have three rules, three basic rules. Number one is the most important. Listen to everything that I say. And that means listen and obey. Listen and comprehend. And do what I say when I say. There's questions. We'll talk about that when the car is stopped. But just do what I say. Number two is important. And they'll know this because they're listening to everything that I say. Number two, stay on the road. The road is your friend. Don't ignore my Jeep that goes off roads. But we stay on the road. And then number three, if they do the first two, third one just falls into place, stay out of the ditch. Now, of course, there's more details involved in driving, but everything pretty much falls into those categories. And if we learn these rules and follow these rules, we're going to get where we're going to go safely and successfully. We are returning to the book of Proverbs, and we're going to receive some driver's training for the pathway of wisdom. The purpose of this book is to impart wisdom to the reader. Last time that I I preached from here, we saw from the first six verses the the purpose of wisdom. And the word that's translated wisdom there in verse 2 and other places is this Hebrew word chokmah. And chokmah means skill, the ability to accomplish a task. And in fact, wisdom is the theme of this book. It's That word is, that concept is repeated throughout it. And and then we're going to look at verse 7, which is really the, the summary statement of this whole book. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. I imagine I'm going to read that verse in every sermon that I preach from, from Proverbs, because it's, it's thematic of the whole, whole book. But that Verse there, verse 7, it's in the Hebrew, it's, it's crafted in such a way that it, it draws the emphasis on those words there of knowledge and wisdom and instruction. It's crafted in such a way that it's pointing towards that with wisdom being the very central of this. So this is like the, the tip of the spear that Solomon is throwing in this book. That word wisdom, chokmah, is used to describe a a variety of skills uh, throughout the Bible. 
In fact, in Exodus 35, verse 25, it, it describes the skills of weavers as they put together the fabric. In Exodus 36, 1 and 2, Hokmah uh, wisdom is used there to describe the skills of carpenters as they're building. In Psalm 107, 27, it's used of a lack of skill. In fact, it's, it's that these sailors were at their wit's end. They were at the end of their wisdom. They were fearful. They didn't know what else to do. Isaiah 10, 13, it's, it's used of warriors and their skills and goldsmiths in Jeremiah 10, verse 9. Skills are required for everything we do. We've been doing a lot of moving. There's skill to moving. There's also unskill in moving as well, too. But there's skill to moving. And I was talking to Lynn Bentley about this morning. And, you know, different people are there and different people have different skills. Some people are skilled in lifting. They're strong and they still have strong backs and there's some people that are skilled in loading. They, uh, they can see a space and know something can fit there or can't fit there. And no amount of pushing is going to change that. And so they, they can see it and know how it can fit. And, and some people are skilled with hope. Uh, when, we were lo- when we were loading up a truck this week, I, t- I told Lynn, I said, Lynn, I need to go get another truck. It's not going to fit. And he says, Pastor, it'll fit. It'll fit. It's not going to fit. You don't have a magic wand. It's not going to fit. And, but you know, it fit. He had the skill. I think he divvied it out among a lot of cars. And so if you have my stuff, bring it back when it's convenient for you. But it worked. And you know, driving requires skill if one's to do it properly. And therefore we have driver's training that's designed to lead one to success and away from failure. And the wisdom or skill that's imparted in this book of Proverbs, though it's not a skill to drive a car or or to navigate an ocean, or even to operate on a brain, the Proverbs impart the skill of how to live life. How to live daily in a way that brings glory to God, for that is what we were created for. Some people approach life carelessly. They live so carelessly, as carelessly as a a drunken fool just getting on the freeway and they're just saying, we'll just see what happens. And that's how they live life. And there's damage and carnage all around them. The series that I'm preaching, when I preach in Proverbs, I've titled Skillful Living in a Sinful World. And those opening verses describe the purpose of wisdom. But the section that we're looking at today from verses 7 through 19 of chapter 1 describe for us the pathway of wisdom. How one can get to the wisdom God reveals for the life that he provides. And so I want to read for us Proverbs 1, 7 through 19. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, I invite you to do so. Proverbs 1, 7 through 19. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and an ornament about your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as those who go down to the pit. We will find all kinds of precious wealth. We will fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. 
Keep your feet from their path, for their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed blood. Indeed, it is useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird, but they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. The path to wisdom is mapped out with directions. These directions are similar to my driver's training rules, which include listening and staying on the road and avoiding pitfalls. What we're going to see today is that the pathway of wisdom is introduced by the godly. It is in relationship with God and in contrast to the godless. We're going to explore three directives that guide us to this idea, guide us in the skill or the wisdom to live for the glory of God as he designed. So first, our first directive in the pathway of wisdom is to hear to learn wisdom. You need to hear to learn wisdom. I'm going to begin with verses 8 and 9. We'll come back to 7 in our second point. Hear to learn wisdom. The pathway of wisdom is introduced by the godly. So one needs to hear that there even is a pathway. There's the call to hear. In verse 8, we see that call. As Solomon says, hear, my son, your father's instruction. And that word hear there is the a, is a same translation of the same word that's used in Deuteronomy 6 of the, the Shema, where it says, hear, O Israel. And that word hear means to pay attention to. It's, it expects that you will obey what is, what is heard. You need to respond to what is heard. You don't just sit there passively and let the words go by. You get up and you, you respond. It's, it's to understand. And so if there is, is something that you're hearing that is, you're not comprehending, you, you have, need to diligently find out what is, to be meant, what is meant by that. It's to think carefully about. All of that is included in this call to hear. It's the opposite of you know, the Charlie Brown cartoons, and I've, we've seen them all over this holiday season. And, and when Charlie Brown is in class and the teacher is speaking, and all this he hears is, want, 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 right? And it's, there's something being said, but there's no comprehension. This is the opposite of that. In fact, this command here, it's, it's an imperative, and it's in the second person singular imperative, which means it's a specific call. It's not just a, a general invitation. It's not just if anyone's listening. It's, it's pointing the finger. And, you know, pastors aren't supposed to point when they preach. But if I could point at every one of you individually, that's what I'm doing here, okay? Because the Scripture is doing that. It's, it's, it's pointing. It's calling you. This is like a, a parent. And I've done this, and probably you've done this with, with young children. When, when you're needing their attention, and you're wanting to speak to them, and you actually gra- cup their cheeks with your hands, and you're saying, look at my eyes. And they're, they're trying to look at the toy or the bike or whatever they want. You're like, no, pay attention to mommy and daddy right now. Hear what we're saying. And it's very deliberate. Jesus often finished up his teaching saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So it's saying pay attention, but then it also, as Proverbs does, often gives the opposite of it. And he says, do not forsake your mother's teaching. Listen, understand, and don't forsake. Or the Legacy Standard Bible says, do not abandon 
that you've heard it and then you walk away from it. Or the Christian Standard Bible says, do not reject. Or even the New American Standard, the 2020 translation says, do not ignore. Don't ignore this. Solomon is speaking as forcefully as he can to tell his son, do not forsake your mother and your father's teaching and instruction. And sometimes children, I've done this and other children have done this that I've been around, where they say, I didn't hear you. You know what Solomon says? That's no excuse. It is, no, it is your responsibility to hear. And don't forsake this. So, so kids, teenagers, today and over this week and in the future, periodically go to your parents and say, is there something I need to be doing right now? Did I miss something? I just want to make sure that, that I'm hearing everything you would have for me. And, and that needs to be the attitude that we have of, I want to hear. I'm looking to hear. It's the opposite of, of how the Lord rebuked Israel in Isaiah when he's asking, who's going to go for us? And he says, send me, and, and how long will I do this? And, and he says in verses 9 and 10 of, of chapter 6, he says, just showing the denseness of Israel, he says, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not know. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. How horrible would that be if they actually listened and then were saved? And he says, but they, they won't. So if anyone's to find wisdom, they, they will hear the call. Well, let's look at the concept of this hearing of who is hearing and whom are they hearing? The address is made from Solomon, he says, to my son. And there's a reference to both the father and the mother. We have a, a parent-child relationship in action being described here. Now, while only the son is, is mentioned here as the student right here, by implication of the fact that the mother is also doing the teaching, the mother had to learn at some point herself, and so... What we see here, it is apparent that both boys and girls and men and women were students and teachers of God's truth in the home. Bruce Waltke, in his commentary, he, he, he reminds us that they didn't just view their children as just biological offspring, but they are spiritual heirs. And that's how they view their children. And so we must pass on the truth of God. We have a responsibility to do that so that our children may walk with the Lord as God created us to. And learning is a transfer of ideas from one person to another. Learning is achieved in the context of relationship. God created us in his image. And part of that image is reflected in that God is a relational being in the Trinity, and we are relational beings. We are not mavericks and lone rangers he even said it is not good for a man to be alone and therefore we learn from someone else and we teach someone else. God designed the family to be the primary or fundamental environment for relationships in, in all society. And so this instruction for wisdom, the skill of living for the glory of God, is being described in the context of parents teaching a child. Now, we live in a day where we like to do things alone and by ourselves and not hindered by people that seem to get in, get in our way. 
We enjoy the blessings of Google and YouTube where I can look up anything by myself and, and find the skill for everything, for how to install a garbage disposal to how to French braid. And I could, I could do that on my own. But that's not how God intended wisdom to be acquired. Wisdom is not just information. It's, it's information applied in the context of a world of relationships. In fact, the word that's used of the mother giving instruction or the mother teaching is that word Torah, which indicates even a, a kind of a catechism type learning of, of questions and, and answers. And there's a, a teacher and a student and there's a relationship of a question asked and an answer given and then a discussion of that together. And, and so it's a back and forth. We even see that in, in the New Testament with Timothy receiving instruction from his mother and his grandmother. And in 2 Timothy three fourteen and 15, it says, But you, Timothy, continue in the things you learned and have been convinced of knowing from whom you learned them. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So it was the word of God that converted him. But he received that word of God from someone. And he was to remember from whom he, he learned them. We have great responsibility to teach God's truth. And to learn God's truth in the context of relationships. All relationships. But relationships begin in the home. So dads and moms of Calvary Bible Church. Will you renew your commitment in 2024 to being in the Word of God and in the Word of God with your family? If you need recommendations on resources that can help you and come alongside you as you study God's Word, please talk to me. Talk to my wife, Lisa. We, I'm the family pastor. And we want to equip families for this. And so talk to us. I don't, I don't know if you're even familiar with the New City Catechism. is one that we've used. It's so helpful and it's, it's kind of a, an updated catechism based on older ones and with question and answers. They've done a great job with an app that's just so helpful and very easy to use. That's, that's one resource. But we must instruct. But what about, what about home situations where there is not a godly mother or father in the home Providing a sanctifying influence. In fact, some of you did not hear any of the word of God until you were an adult. How do such have a godly father or mother? Well, this is the beauty of the church. As we take responsibility for one another. Remember? Remember how Paul called Timothy in 2 Timothy 1-2, he called him his beloved son. Why? Because he invested in him. He called Titus his true child in Titus 1-4. And Philemon, I love it, in Philemon 10, he says, my child whom I have begotten. I thank God for the Christian father and mother that he blessed me with in the home that I was blessed in to grow up reading Proverbs and studying God's word and going to church, and, and I thank God for my parents that I was blessed to be instructed. But I, I also thank God that, that the Lord brought in others in my life that have acted as spiritual fathers and mothers 
throughout my years, some of them for just a short period of time and some for decades. And, and God has used so many in my life personally. And, and I know in yours too, are you remembering who it is that has taught you the word of God? And, and are you taking responsibility to do the same? It's a blessing to do so. In fact, he says this, there's a crown of hearing as we need to to hear, to to learn God's word. There's a a blessing in this. He says in verse 9, Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and an ornament about your neck. Now this is a sign of honor. In fact, you would see this in other parts of Scripture. Remember when Joseph was made second in charge by Pharaoh. He put not only a signet ring on his hand, but a, a gold chain around his neck. Same thing happened to Daniel when, from Belshazzar when he interpreted what was written on the wall, that he put this gold chain on his neck. And, and in Judges chapter 8, we see Gideon's men, that they, they're dividing up the spoil from the armies that they had defeated. And not only were there the kings that they defeated, but even the king's camels had such ornaments on their neck. For this was a, a sign of success, a sign of authority. And it says... We are blessed with such wisdom when we hear it. And Paul said this in 1 Thessalonians 2.19 of those that he taught the word of God. He says that you are my crown of exaltation. And when we see our children and our students and those that we discipled hear what is taught and be blessed by the truth, we are crowned with joy and, and blessing in that. Their success becomes our crown. Like John says in his epistle, there's no greater joy than to see that my children are walking in the truth. So the pathway of wisdom is discovered first when one hears to learn wisdom. Are your ears attentive today? You say, well, I've I've been in church every Sunday this year. You know, Israel. Israel had all the prophets And their hearing was dull. And their eyes were blind. Because it's like their eyes were shut and their fingers were in their ear. They would not hear. May that not be said of you, but we can easily be tempted towards that. Are your ears open? Open today. You must hear to learn wisdom. The pathway of wisdom is introduced by the godly in relationship with God and in contrast to the godless. So let's move on in that statement to the second directive that guides us in the skill of wisdom to live for the glory of God as he designed it. And it is this. Fear the Lord of wisdom. Fear the Lord of wisdom. Back up to verse 7. As this relates to my driver's training rules, this is the stay on the road. The road is your friend. It's designed for you to be on it. And our pathway of wisdom is in relationship with God. And the phrase that describes a proper relationship with God in Proverbs, throughout the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament some, that phrase is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord describes being in a right relationship with God. Now, there could be some misunderstanding about this phrase, fear of the Lord. And it's easy to misunderstand this phrase because of that first word, fear. You don't think that fear has anything to do with a good relationship. When we fear something, we're not typically moving towards it. 
We're moving away from it as quickly as possible. And the misunderstanding of this phrase happens when we, when we break up this phrase and understand the parts unrelated to each other. We might look up a definition of the word fear, but we need to understand that in, in its context. And I don't even need to read to you a definition of fear. You know what fear is. You know what it is to be afraid. Some of you have been afraid of dogs, maybe from a, as a child, and some of you are afraid of heights. You even you, you see like those YouTube videos of someone walking out on one of those glass decks on a tall building. You're like, I can't even watch the video here on there. And, or maybe you're afraid of water and, and swimming. And, you know, and I, I could go on describing more and more, and you would all start sweating in the pew here. You know, but, and also some people have, are fearful because they have been hurt by evil done to them. And there are triggering things that are said, and it just brings back that terrifying moment. So we understand fear. And then if we keep just fear separated, and then we go to the Lord, and we know the Lord is speaking of God's covenantal name, Yahweh, and this is speaking of God Almighty, God who is all-knowing, God who will judge over all of creation, including you. And if you think of that in regards to the terrors of fear, and you're thinking like, maybe I should run. It's not hard to conclude that God is terrible and terrifying and we should avoid and not be related to. But we must understand this phrase altogether. It is a package deal. It's like Bruce Waltke also. He says, we don't understand a butterfly by looking up butter and then looking up the word fly and getting those separate definitions and putting that together. It doesn't make, make sense. Or concrete doesn't exist unless you combine both water and cement. And then you have a, a new thing. If it were not for God relating to us as Lord, as Yahweh, which describes his covenantal relationship, his covenantal love towards those that he redeems, If it wasn't for that, our fear of terror would be appropriate. But the fact is, we understand what it is to fear in the context of being in relationship with Yahweh. John Gill, in his commentary, said, quote, By the fear of the Lord is not meant a servile fear, a fear of punishment, of hell, of wrath and damnation, which is the effect of the first work of the law upon our conscience, but a filial fear and supposes the knowledge of God as father of his love and grace in Christ, particularly of his forgiving love from whence it arises. It is a holy, humble, fiducial fear of God, a reverential affection for him, a devotion to him. It includes the whole of religious worship. It is like loving God. In fact, One commentator says, in speaking of Deuteronomy, the fear of the Lord used there, it shows how the love of the Lord, love of Yahweh, and fear of Yahweh are used as synonyms. Uh, Walkie quotes Bridges on this. He says, The affectionate reverence by which a child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his Father's law. The fear of the Lord is, is what Jesus described the new testament where he says if you love me you will do what you'll keep my commandments 
There's a, a submitting to, a, a following, a, a taking seriously, a, an obedience to that's rooted not in a, a slave-master relationship, but of a father-son relationship. Because I love my earthly father, I, I listen to him and I talk to him and I seek him out. And this is the, the relationship we have with God because he is Yahweh. What does that actually look like for a person to fear the Lord in such a way that he keeps his commandments in love? Well, what's the, what's the greatest command? Jesus says the foremost is to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. He says the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. Love God. Love one another. Now, if you begin to try that, not in relationship with God, not in faith and trusting God, you're going to find yourself a miserable failure. We fall short on that all the time. So what do we do? Well, the greatest command comes with the greatest grace. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Jesus came from heaven into this world to die on a cross as a payment for our sin, our failure to love God and love one another, our failure to fear the Lord. He did that so you could receive forgiveness from your sins. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There were men on the day of Pentecost who who wanted to respond in obedience to Peter's preaching of God's word. And he said, what should we do? And he says, repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And as you think about whether you fear the Lord or not, if you fear the Lord, your first response in fearing the Lord will be coming to him in faith, coming to him for salvation. And you must do that today. You must do that today. You have heard the wisdom of God's word. You need to respond to that today by the fearing the Lord. Walking in wisdom is walking in fellowship with God. As Adam and Eve did in the garden before sin. And that's only possible as we come through the second Adam, Jesus Christ. For all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John 1.12. The fear of the Lord is seen when one responds to God's conviction of sin by believing the call of the gospel displayed when the sinner is converted to be a child of God. And it is necessary. It is absolutely necessary. And that's what verse 7 tells us. The wisdom of Proverbs. If you study this book apart from the fear of the Lord, apart from a right relationship with God, it will make no difference. In fact, as I prepare to preach through Proverbs, my, my, my greatest struggle and greatest fear is, is that I don't come with just a, a moralistic sermon that is just be good, be nice, be better than you were yesterday. That's not what this is about. Come to God and know life as he is designed for you. And it says, without the fear of the Lord, there's nothing. But with the fear of the Lord, it is the beginning of knowledge. I mean, the world has so-called proverbs that, 
that are not in relationship with God. There's, there's things, you know, like a, a stitch in time saves nine. I had to look that up. I didn't even know what that meant. But it means don't procrastinate, right? And you, procrastinating is not a helpful thing in your life. Or I remember what my grandpa always told me. He says, don't pick up any wooden nickels. So we're always leaving, which means don't be fooled by that which is fake. At least that's how I took it. But, you know, and, uh, you know, but the, the true skill for living or true wisdom is found not just in little ditties or thoughts that are little hacks for life. No, they are found in relationship with our creator. This is why God is the main subject of Proverbs. In fact, in, fact, in these uh, first nine chapters, uh, he's mentioned in a total of 100 verses out of 915 or of all Proverbs, which, which means God is referenced in 10% of these verses. Yahweh is, is referenced in 80, 87 different times. And so the Lord is the main theme. And verse 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This does not mean the beginning like you, you do something at the start and then you move on from it. No, this is the foundation for it. It's like, as one said, it's as what the alphabet is to reading or notes are to reading music and numerals are to mathematics. The fear of the Lord is to attaining the revealed knowledge of this book. This is why as as Christians, we regularly remember the Lord's table. For we remember our relationship. We remember the gospel. For everything comes out of that. This is what we are teaching our children. This is what we are passing on to others. Be in relationship with God. And the fear of the God, fear of the Lord describes that. To walk in wisdom, we must hear and learn the fear of the Lord. So the pathway of wisdom is Introduced by the godly, it is in relationship with God. Are you in relationship with God? Do you know Jesus Christ is your Savior? Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In Christ, you never move on from Christ. This is the beginning of Everything you're to know and everything you're to do, the gospel should impact everything that you do. Everything that you do. How you move into a house can be impacted by the gospel. As we were moving in yesterday, a neighbor walked by and says, hey, are you one of the new pastors over there? Something like that. It's like, oh, people are looking. People are watching. May they see the gospel in everything that we do. Let's consider the third directive that guides us in the skill of wisdom to live for the glory of God as he designed. Third is this. Steer clear from lies of pseudo-wisdom. Steer clear from the lies of pseudo-wisdom. And this is the bigger chunk of this this text here. It's interesting to me, and we're going to deal with this in about the same amount of time, but the first part there of relationship with the Lord is just one verse. And then with parents, it's two verses. And then with the world is this larger section. It's like it gets more and more porous as it, as it goes. But the emphasis there is in your relationship with God. So of my three driver's training rules, this third one parallels the stay out of the ditch. Or you could insert any other situation that would take the driver off the road and into harm's way. 
I use ditch because when we lived in the Central Valley, we were among the vast agricultural center. Fields and fields of fruit trees were, were all around us. And ditches were used to irrigate. And these ditches were along many of the roads. And they could be some small, some large, sometimes six feet deep and 10 feet across or 15 feet across. And, and you know, they're very helpful to the farmers when they're irrigating. And they're fun for an 11-year-old boy riding his bike in and out when they're dry. Um, but for a 15-year-old learning to drive... Or a 35-year-old fool, the instruction is stay out of the ditch. Stay out of the ditch. But that ditch is a good reminder that alongside the paths that we should be on are these paths that we should not be on. And the lies are often placed right alongside the truth and look very similar and seem to be going in the, the same direction that would, we would assume to the same end and could potentially be helpful, but in reality, they are deadly. So as the father and mother are teaching the children to fear the Lord and to love God and to trust his word, they are also warning against the lies of sinners who promote that which appears desirable, but the end is empty of everything but misery, death, and God's judgment. So the father says there in verse 10, My son, again, just that term of endearment, my son is this pleading, if sinners entice you, and the word entice literally means to be wide open. If you're just kind of like, I'm open to anything. If, if sinners are coming after you because of your, your naive. He goes, if they're, and the sinner, who is this? This is one who's committed to abandoning the Lord in his way. Of course, we are all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But this description here is used in contrast to the one who fears the Lord and trusts God and comes to him for salvation and loves the Lord. This sinner is committed to rebellion against truth and holiness. And the sinner sees the young son and thinks, here is a wide open door for temptation. The father says, when such sinners seek to take advantage of you with deception, do not consent. The legacy standard, do not be willing. NIV says, do not give in to them. How, how will one know the lies from the truth? Well, godly parents are already teaching them to fear the Lord. But also the father describes the schemes of the enemy. He, he describes this in, in such a way that is, is drawing one in. Even as you're reading it, you're like, oh, wow, what's going to happen next? What's gonna happen? He's drawing them in. This is how the world works. This is what it will look like. We, the godly of, in our homes and in our church and in our discipleship and all of this, we need to bring, be the one to bring up the plots of worldly wisdom and to show how it Though it sometimes looks like the truth, it is contrary to the truth. We must not send our, our children and those who are immature into the, in the faith uh, just into the world to figure it out for themselves. It's malpractice on our part as parents. Tell them how the world offers a kind of gospel that might make sense, but it actually has no eternal value. Colossians chapter 2, I 
one of my favorite chapters. And it says in verse 8, it says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ. They have a wisdom that is not based on God's provision of salvation. It is a wisdom that is not rooted in the context of the fear of the Lord. And then he goes on and describes that in Colossians 2. And then at the end of verse 23, he says of some of their ideas, he says, which are matters having to be sure a word of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. It says the world is offering these ideas that are not according to Christ. And, but as you think about them, you think like, well, that, that seems like it works. And I see differences and change in people. And, and so it seems profitable. But he says it, it does not deal with the sin of your heart. And here the father introduces his son to the lies that are used to entice the son away from fearing the Lord. If, and they will despise the Lord if they follow these lies. And so I've looked at this. I see like, I put it in three categories of three lies that we do not want to fall for. First is this, lie number one says something like, you will be strong apart from the Lord. Look at verses 11 and 12. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as those who go down to the pit. They are trying to make their own strength. The desire is in contrast to the one who places their fear in the Lord. Rather, they want people to fear them. Rather than acknowledging God as supreme authority, they want to establish themselves as the authority and say, I'll take care of myself. I will not be afraid of others, but rather make them afraid of me. Now, of course, as we read this, we can hear some you know, street gang member calling a kid to join his brutal posse and, and they'll be feared by others on the streets rather than, than fearing others and This warning will surely speak to those who would adopt a a tough guy, violent, vindictive, vengeful approach to life. And if that is anything you are tempted in the street gangs or organized crime or whatever, that's foolish. Don't go that way. A fellow pastor recently preached this text and part of his title was, don't be a gangster. (laughs) But maybe that's not your normal crowd anyways. But don't think you're immune to this temptation that you will be strong apart from the Lord. I think of us middle-class Americans that think our confidence in life is secured by us being in a country with the strongest military or that I've honed my martial arts effectively or I've trained to have the sharpest of tongues all to secure my well-being. And if I join the the right party, political party, together we will be strong and conquer. I'll say the same thing to you. Don't be a gangster. Don't, don't fall to such a lie. Be warned that your strength of muscle or wit will not be your hope. Fear the Lord who is your only refuge. Line number two, verses 13 through 15 
Something like, you will be satisfied apart from the Lord. You will be satisfied apart from the Lord. They go on in their temptation. We will find all kinds of precious wealth. We will fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path. The sinners entice the son with the promise of of wealth and financial security. But that doesn't last. I mean, you could go, just think of Job. Job was a righteous man. And his wealth was taken from him in a day. How much more those that despise their maker. And Solomon, who had such wealth, Solomon, who wrote this, who had such wealth, would would tell you his assessment in all of this, as he does in Ecclesiastes, that it is empty. It is vanity. And the end of all evaluations is to do what? Fear the Lord and keep his commandments. It's a lie to think that your physical wealth will be a satisfying element in your life. Fear the Lord. He alone is your shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. But if the Lord is not your shepherd, you will never be satisfied. So don't fall for that lie. You will be satisfied apart from the Lord. Then lie number three. Say something like, you will be saved apart from the Lord. Look at verse 16. Following, for their feet run to evil. Just shows they're just heading to destruction. Their feet run to evil and they hasten to shed blood. Indeed, gives an illustration. It's useless to spread a baited net in the sight of any bird. But they lie and wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessor. And this father reminds him, he says, wait, you've seen the birds. Even if the birds see you laying out the net, the trap, it's not going to go into it and take the bait. Even the birds not, know not to fall into the, the obvious trap. But the father describes this in great detail of the plots and the schemes of the enemy. And he says, even a bird brain would know not to go this path. And yet some of these people continue to go towards their destruction. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. They think they're a special case. They think they're ahead of the curve. They can save themselves and secure their well-being apart from the Lord. But the truth is there is no salvation outside of God's gracious provision. And if you are ignoring the teaching of the godly that is pointing you to come to the Lord in faith and repentance, right now you are plotting your own destruction. You are digging your own eternal grave. You lay out a scheme to overcome others and gain by violence and you will fall into your own wicked trap. Your prideful ambition will be the very condemnation hung over your head, spoken of by the judge on the last day. The pathway of wisdom is introduced by the godly. It is in relationship with God, and it is in contrast to the lies of the godless. In John Bunyan's classic work, The Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, the main character, he's he's coming near the end of his journey, 
He's accompanied still by his friend, Hopeful. But alongside them comes a a younger guy named Ignorance, who joins them partway through the journey. Ignorance stepped onto the king's highway by way of the crooked lane, where he comes from his native country called Conceit. He did not begin this journey at the same place as did Christian. And he thinks he can get to the celestial city just like Christian, for they're going in the same direction. But he's going to do it in his own manner. He did not start at the same place, and he'll choose a slightly different path across the river of death. But in the end, he's turned away from the gates of the celestial city, and he's sent to damnation and judgment. Whereas Christian is received and rewarded. And all through the Bible, we see two paths that often seem to run parallel with each other. And so we can, if we are short-sighted, we can assume they're heading to the same end. But that wasn't so with Cain and Abel, was it? They were raised in the same household, but they ended quite differently. Abel, mentioned as one of faith in Hebrews 11. Psalm 1 decries the way of the blessed man who delights in the law of the Lord. And it does this in contrast to the wicked. At the end of that psalm, it says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is our message. The pathway of wisdom is introduced by the godly. Let us do that. Let us be faithful to do that. Let us do that in our homes. Let us do that in our church, in our children's ministries, in our discipleship, in our small groups. We must introduce the pathway of wisdom. It is in relationship with God. You must come to the Lord through Jesus Christ. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. You must love him. And it is in contrast to the godless. So beware of the lies. Be warning of those lies. So we might keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you so much for the scriptures. That Lord, you have given to us your truth that reveals your glory. We thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit who teaches us and strengthens us. And Lord, he does that to us as a church together. And today, Lord, we have sat under the teaching of your word together. We are accountable to you. We are accountable with one another. And so, Lord, might we encourage one another and stimulate one another to love and good works, to follow this truth by your grace. And Father, if there are those that are not in Christ, open their heart today. May they hear, may they see, may their hearts be changed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lachman Foundation.